Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. We are in conversation with Daniel Fernandez-Pascual from the London-based duo Cooking Sections. Their practice, together with Alon Schwabe, uses food as a lens and a tool to observe landscapes in transformation. In a broader sense, they examine the systems that organize our world through food and food cultures. Their output manifests in a variety of media using site-responsive installation, performances, and video. Cooking sections offer a mode of cultural production which navigates the overlapping boundaries between art, architecture, ecology, and geopolitics. Besides being nominated for the 2021 Turner Prize, they recently installed a fully operational space focusing on water buffalo milk and its byproducts, as well as its ecopolitical significance within the Istanbul Biennale and as part of their ongoing project on Istanbul's water buffaloes called Wallowland. Now, our conversation took place before this installation ever happened, but refers to this project via its starting point, the recent large-scale exhibition at SALT, again in Istanbul, which laid the groundwork for Wallowland. Cooking Section's work has also been exhibited at Tate Britain, Serpentine Galleries and many biennials and internationally renowned institutions. And they are also leading a studio unit at the Architecture Department of the Royal College of Art in London. As always, check out our episode notes for our extensive links and references on all the concepts, projects and the people that are mentioned during the conversation. For the more visually oriented among you, we are sharing images of works that are mentioned in our Instagram account, so check us out at ahali.podcast. Let's start with the climate war, because I mean, it's like an overarching frame for a number of projects, and it's like this long-term approach on matters of concern and issues that you have with the climate change and with food in general. From what I observe, you seem to start from anecdotes, And then with every story comes like uh, various entanglements that you unravel. And then you reconnect the dots by exhibitions and special interventions. But there's also any kind of institutional commitment that you generate. I'm thinking about Salmon and Red Herring and how you convinced the Tate in all their venues to stop serving Salmon. And that's also, to me, an example of operating on a one-to-one scale, like having a direct influence on the places that also host your work. I mean, this is just my analysis, but <laughs> I'm not sure if you would agree with. Yeah, you're right. I think one of the ways in which the project around the impact of salmon farms in, in Scotland and other parts of the world started was when we came across this story of a little bird, a house sparrow that had turned pink, and then its feathers had kind of acquired that kind of tone. So. In a way, the little bird turned salmon because he had eaten one of the feed pellets, what they feed the fish with from a farm. And then it was like a flamingo almost that eating shrimp. 
like the, the color went into its feathers, which is what happens with, with salmon fish. And that's also in a way that story led us to try to understand how color circulates through many, many bodies and how also all these uh, industrial food systems are you kind know, of supplementing all the lack of natural foods in those animals through kind of artificial means. And in a way for us then is when we study using color or understanding color as a way to trace this environmental impact. And also in, in regards to, to kind of more the institutional work, I think that's also for us very important. So how in, our, in the different exhibitions that we do, how to combine what happens in the gallery space with what happens outside and how not to separate the two because it's kind of all parts of one. And in the case of this exhibition, Salmon and Red Herring, that is on in, in London at Tate Britain, that was also part of the work that we were in conversations with them for more than a year on how to make that happen, how to make that move to remove salmon from their menus and introduce a clam of a dish made with ingredients that regenerate the water as they grow, like bivalves or, or seaweeds. And the two are kind of part of one, right? That you have the installation in the gallery space that you understand why color is traveling through different bodies or how different bodies are traveling through color. But also you can go to the restaurants or cafes and, and taste some of these alternatives. Especially in the case of salmon, the color seems to matter a lot because there's also a color named after the salmon. But as far as I understand, if we were to eat salmon that are not fed these coloring materials, the color of salmon would no longer be salmon kind of situation. There's this really neat layering of the story that you are tackling or the situation, which is always related to cultures of food, be it agriculture or be it farming, be it food production. And then you bring it together with a research or investigation, we can say. Uh, and on top of it, you kind of venture outside of the confines of the so-called work and look at where the work is positioned and try to tackle that. And that seems to happen uh, in Istanbul as well. It incorporates various stories, but one that kind of struck with me was the manda, the water buffaloes, and how you first take notice of that and then how you build the story and how you intervene. Would you like to tell us a little bit about how that developed? Sure. When we were invited to, to SALT to, to develop an, an exhibition, we thought it would make sense to continue the framework of Imavor, but responding to different questions on the kind of Mediterranean coast or Anatolia at large, different ways of growing things. And the overall exhibition came about because we learned about this geographic congress from the 1940s when the country decided in a way kind of organized the way of talking about the country through different regions at different products and different climates, right? So you would have this kind of seven regions, each region would produce this and this and that, and then would have this and these temperatures and this and this kind of landscape. And that way of organizing knowledge was quite kind of advanced back then. But today also we see how those same regions are not producing those products, that some of those regions might be drier or kind of more rainy than they were 70, 80 years ago, and even the kind of the plants and crops are reorganizing themselves. And then it's almost like this existential question is like, are those regions connected to the same products or not? Or what will happen in 20 years? And I think that's also something that many people have been thinking about. 
And not only in Turkey, many other places, right? What happens in a region of olive trees, you cannot grow olives anymore because it's too dry. Just a parenthesis, because growing up in Turkey, you end up like primary school is like years of memorizing this. <laughs> And, but even throughout my lifetime, I've observed that many new plants also been introduced to farming, like kiwi and avocado ended up being farmed. And also years later, I learned that tea and corn, which were like very much associated with the Black Sea region, are actually not, are also imported crops. They are not originated there. So I just, just a parenthesis, but yeah. <laughs> and that was also very exciting to learn about. And then even when we were talking to hazelnut farmers in the Black Sea region, also they were saying that even the hazelnuts that have been there for a longer time, now they need to plant them higher and higher up in the mountains because it's too hot otherwise, right? So all these kind of transformations that for us are quite important to understand in order to trace environmental change. And one of the elements that we were looking at was, as you were saying, the water buffaloes outside Istanbul and how also kind of the wetlands that were part of the outside of the city have been more and more encroached by roads, the airport, or a lot of infrastructure. And to start thinking what happens to the buffalo. And we've been in conversation with some of the buffalo herders in the area, thinking about Yeah, what's the future and how do we kind of understand the kind of the relationship between the buffalo and the landscape and how the two need each other basically and how the buffalo needs also these ponds the wallows to survive and the other way around so what we did there as part of the project was to first yeah start talking to the different buffalo herders in the area and then also we In one of the kind of lands, we dug a wallow, a new wallow, like a new pond for, for the buffaloes. And then with the mud, we collaborated with the ceramicists and archaeologists to produce 1,000 large pots. And then those which are part of the installation display also, those will also be reused after the exhibition to kind of serve large or, or kaimak made with buffalo milk from the surroundings. So how through the pot and the mud and the material of the clay, uh, also people can reconnect what's happening outside the city and inside the city. And if we want the wetlands to stay, maybe also the water buffaloes needs to stay. And then what happens to the milk, right? So it's almost like a whole cycle. How do you start thinking about all these relationships between herding, the, the wetlands and the whole habitat that is there? And also what has been quite a traditional dish in the Ottoman cuisine uh, for centuries and how to connect it all together. And also this will be like a terrible generalization, but most often the kind of ecological standpoint or the, let's say, actions concerning climate change are against building, so to say, quote unquote, or against making something, but it's more about stopping or slowing down. Uh, whereas in your case, for example, you are not Uh, shying away from introducing a man-made wallow, a pond uh, for the buffaloes as well. And I find that quite intriguing and in a sense, not the same kind of, to me at least, alarmist kind of attitude, but it's like, it's more about what can we do? How can we talk about it? What are the tools we can develop to both talk about and intervene to this direction? And in that sense, the climb of our dishes that you are 
generating alongside these projects or as alternatives are I find also quite interesting and in them or in this sutlaj case as well like how does it work do you collaborate with uh, chefs or do you collaborate with people who are engaged in food or are you already well versed in in these matters no we we collaborate with a lot of people because we <laughs> we need to know a lot more things in the case for instance of in the project with the buffaloes we did with the team there in in istanbul we did a lot of research on which places are still serving buffalo milk from the outside of the city very very few left there used to be many more but again because of all these pressures around urbanization this been kind of fewer and fewer and also the ones that supply to the city are uh, kind of also disappearing so we found like a couple of places that still do it and then that was also part of the connection with the exhibition um but also to kind of make people know that there's still these people developing these dishes and yeah that they are extremely important if we want to preserve the landscape because the landscape outside the city on its own would not survive if also there is not this kind of human use of the buffaloes taking the buffaloes roaming around so in that sense we we collaborate with existing restaurants or or places that are ready to their thing very well and many times what we do is just to suggest some ingredients or or some formats in which they can serve variations of what they already do so in in the case for instance in and back to the salmon what we've been doing also in in Scotland and the UK at large is to ask them to remove salmon but introduce things with seaweeds or bivalves right and then they develop the recipe we also like to cook a lot but we rather like let them do and we can suggest and guide but it's not as kind of telling them like this is the recipe this is how you do for us it's much more important and interesting when they develop something that fits into their own operation let's say so we do collaborate a lot with all kinds of chefs and restaurants and cafes from very kind of fine dining to extremely simple and almost like food trucks like on the road um, because that's also important for us how people can engage with these questions and they yeah from very very different uh, backgrounds as far as i know you actually emerged from the goldsmiths research architecture department both of you and if i'm correct that's al's al weisman's department right did you study with him uh, or were you at any point like entangled in forensic architecture his project we actually met Alon and me, we met at the Center for Research Architecture, as you were saying, and that's what we studied. I did my PhD there. And in a way, yeah, there's the forensic architecture project that we also, of course, we're kind of involved at some point, but also you have the whole center at large and then people develop their own projects. Um, so that's where we started working together, Alon and me, and, and then using food also as another tool to understand this relationships between political structures or economic regimes or ways in which landscapes are being built we set up cooking sections as a as our practice to kind of explore these uh, issues further no i ask this because you are also teaching uh, i don't know if the rca is still continuing but that's in the architecture department as well or do you run a unit there how's your approach to education First, it's very important to use education to expand some of these questions and, and kind of think further about, especially all these relationships that kind of configure the world. So we run a studio, the two of us together at the Royal College of Art in the School of Architecture that connects 
questions around the built environment with metabolism and how human bodies or non-human bodies are processing all these substances that are flowing all around us that come from construction or from many other kind of sources. Um, so how to think of the built environment through the human body and digestive systems and things and chemicals and all kinds of particles that are circulating through us. And then, so in a way, it's quite connected to ecology and architecture, but also we like to think of the built environment in terms of responses as interventions that can have many possible formats. This question emerged and I'm curious and feel free to disclose as much as you like or not, but uh, we are also curious about how you make this work possible. You know, how do you operate? How do you sustain? Like, do you identify as kind of a mode of operation or economical continuance and things like that to elaborate how cooking sections operate? That's a great question. Uh, well, first of all, it's a lot of hard work. And, and then we do kind of apply for a lot, a lot of grants. So I think, I don't know the context in Turkey, in the UK, or there's a lot of grants from the government that people apply within the arts or outside the arts. And I think what we learned over the years is that yet how to take different aspects of the work and then connect to people that would be interested in supporting those parts. So for instance, in the case of Sky, we've been doing a lot of like education or a lot of like collective histories or a lot of things with marine scientists to develop kind of farming prototypes. And then according to the different aspects within the wider project, then you go and apply for a bit of money here, a bit of money there that would support more the marine biology part or more the kind of apprenticeship workshops or, you know, and I think that's what we learned over the years, how to identify these different bodies that would be interested in that. And then also with, with museums and like at the beginning, when we started working, they would ask us to produce a small projects and then slowly, slowly also how to be proactive in suggesting bigger things, right? So like if they invite you to do this little thing, then you, I think we also like to say, okay, this would be great, but can we also find another partner that would support this if we make it bigger or here or there? So that was almost like a, a strategy also to make the most out of the research that we would be doing because research takes a lot of time and how to then squeeze the most out of it. And I think also trying to connect to the different experts that we've been in conversation with, from science to anthropology to other places, and many times find resources together. And that's been another. So at the moment, we don't work with a commercial gallery. We work more within institutions or public grants or different kind of foundations that would support the work in certain locations. So that's how we work. <laughs> I think the grants are really make total sense, uh, especially with regards to the research uh, aspect. And I love the way you identify, let's say, counterparts and how, how these can kind of combine in a sense, because obviously there is no kind of structural funding body for practices such as yours, which are so kind of intermingled with different modes of knowledge producing. But the adapt question is the about the continuation because you also do quite a bit of long-term or long-lasting projects. And then, for example, in the Isle of Sky, I mean, we didn't fully explain it, but I think we can share some images with our audiences. You built this structure, or let's say in Istanbul, you dug this 
pond. How is the time, the temporal aspect, uh, working for such physical interventions uh, in the world? Do they remain or are they kind of there for a kind of temporarily? For us, it's quite important with these projects to, to think of the continuation of it. And depending on the context, sometimes it's easier than others, as you can imagine. But it's something that we always put at the front, from the beginning of, of the project, before even we start working with an institution, is how can we think of this as we go along as something that has an afterlife or, or can continue in different ways. Many times it's impossible to define, but it has to be in the head of all everyone. So with the sky, for instance, the oyster table, it started first as something that you would only get a permission for six months, right? And they wouldn't give you a permission, like in terms of the kind of the right to put that structure out in the water for longer, but then you kind of reapply and then you extend it. And then we, we that's the process that it usually takes. So you start again from something very little, but knowing how to take the steps to make it stay for a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer. So that well, was to be six months, then it was allowed to be for two years. And now it's been like four years. So it's coming also to its uh, next phase. But also what, what's allowed us also is to, in the case of Sky, is to make the project grow beyond the table itself. Right? So the table was perhaps the most iconic part or the most visible. But then we developed all these kind of programs with the marine scientists to, with, to develop the farm prototypes, with the restaurants, collaborations, with the schools to develop apprenticeships. And that also became the project in itself. And now we're coming to a point that we want to transition from that table that was kind of very event-based to actually implementing a, a real farm, right? So almost like from the table to the farm. And, and that gets another life. So it's more the commitment to work in these questions for a longer period of time, and then the projects naturally evolve at the same time. And also letting it grow, both metaphorically and literally, I think it's a good take. And like Tim Ingold, the writer, talks about making versus growing. So making involves, or let's say designing also usually refers to that, envisioning something and then product and then realizing it. Whereas growing involves more kind of a process, perhaps, and also see kind of where the process takes you a little bit. I mean, obviously you have a clear goal, but let's say you work through time and see it grow. I don't know if I'm like making this up. <laughs> no, no, you're totally right. And yes, how to make things grow is very important, literally and also like figuratively. And for instance, in, in Istanbul, with a project with the buffaloes, that's what we are trying to do after the exhibition, thinking about the afterlife. And, and that is a project that will continue for the Istanbul Biennial. Also, is basically continuing the conversations that are already happening and thinking of what happens with the pots, what happens with the wallow, what happens with the buffaloes, our relationship with them to them, um, and finding other formats that can continue the project, basically. I mean, they are still to a certain extent models or propositions. Would you imagine them being taken up by other entities, uh, reproduced or uh, scaled up or like, you know, how the model works? Do you see that happening? And how would your position be with regards to such a situation? That's a very important question for us as well. How to think of this replicability, right? It's almost like thinking about also the sustainability of the practice, right? 
yeah, we'd like to think about these models that other people can take on and adapt and transform and make them different. So that's why also from the recipes that we kind of discuss with restaurants, how they take them on and kind of like make them better or different to some of these structures. For instance, if we're talking now about this multi-species intertidal farm in Sky to grow multiple species together, how that could also adapt to different locations, how different coastal communities would take that model on and adapt it. So that's what we are also discussing with different groups to make variations of the same according to the different geographies or conditions of their kind of uh, coast, but also with other things, how to offer that for us is very important, how to offer that as almost like models that people can uh, start or continue growing. But the knowledge is always very situated. So probably such a replication would necessitate similar depth of research. It's not something that is very uh, situated. Yes, that's also part of the exciting component or aspect of it. That in, in the case of Sky, we started doing these seaweed tests to, to understand what grows first. And then when other people are asking for that near there, even if it's half hour away, it's completely different uh, because things are completely different. And then you need to do other tests. You need to engage with other people that live there. So it's, of course, not straightforward. It's another kind of almost like another project, but you already have the methodologies or, or ways of thinking about it that are quite helpful to start from. Maybe let's lighten up a bit and go back to food. And maybe you can tell us, like, this will be a very sharp question, uh, but your top three restaurants, <laughs> uh, maybe with like three parameters, ethical standpoint, taste and creativity. <laughs> That's a very hard question. <laughs> for us, I think more than like specific places where, where we like is also, and that's what we are trying to do now with the project in, in Climavor is collaborating with restaurants to, to become Climavor. And I think that's also something we've been thinking a lot about how to be constantly challenging menus, right? And ideas and what makes sense now or for how long and when and uh, in that sense, what we are doing with restaurants in the UK is to enter this process, especially in museums, for them to become climate basically to remove uh, farmed salmon or farmed fish and introduce ingredients that regenerate the water or the soil while growing. So that's what we are doing. And in terms of ethos, that's for us what we are kind of now uh, working on. And that is also something that might take a couple of months or or years and that's what we like to engage with restaurants that continue in that process cool and would you expand that to restaurants that are not located in art institutions or do you have any conversations from that and maybe in relation to that is there a kind of climb our manifesto or by its nature does it have to change through time as well yes i think for us it's important to have guidelines but it's also they have to change over time exactly what you are saying. And it's a, almost like an evolution, constant evolution and thinking what makes sense, when and for how long. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. 
you encouraged to remove farmed salmon from the menu, right? And also, well, Cape Britain removed farmed salmon from its menu. And like, I can't help but wonder, like, have you taken a look at the restaurant and the cafe at Salt and their menu? Like, have you noticed anything <laughs> as a general question? So Tate, when they reopened, they kind of joined the project. Also Serpentine Galleries in London, the, the new restaurant, um, they are offering several dishes. In the UK also we have the Aberdeen Art Gallery in Scotland that is serving Clive of a Dish. And we'll be kind of expanding that also over the next months, but also not only museums. So we start with museums because we think that it's important to think of culture from the space of, of food. And we like to link it also to the origins of the word restaurant or kind of the modern establishment in Europe. It goes back to France in the 18th century where these new places were called bouillon restaurant, meaning a place where you would get a bouillon, a soup, to restore the body or to warm up the body. And for us, it's important to see the restaurant today as the place is to restore not only the, the body, but also ecology at large. And in the case of Salt, also what we were doing is to collaborate with more educational or, or people that are training to become professional cooks in the city. It's kind of a combination between spaces of culture and spaces of eating. And do you see it ever expanding to homes? Like, could there be a Climate War cookbook? Coming up soon. What we did as a first step was with the apprentices, which were teenagers that also are training to become professional cooks, um, like 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, so they, as part of the apprenticeship in Sky, they also developed their own recipes that were a bit like very simple, very accessible. So we produced kind of a, a little, little cookbook with the recipes that they developed. Fantastic. No, I'd be curious to hear or see it, but I also am aware that this doesn't go unnoticed by the salmon farmers. And beyond their initial reaction, do you have any suggestions for them? Or do you think farming should be abolished once and for all? Yes, <laughs> I think so. But I think it's more, again, you see, like, industry is always in transition, right? It's, it's not that we are against industry. You see, even with kind of oil companies that they are now, or they've been doing for 10 years, at least, investing in kind of solar energy or in wind energy. So companies also, they know that what is good at some point might be not good later on. Um, so it's a constant evolution as well. And perhaps in the food sector, there hasn't been so much kind of advancement into divesting into other businesses as much as there's been with energy. With energy has been very, very, because it has been so controversial that the companies themselves have learned how to invest in other forms of energy. Whereas with food is not so common yet. And I think that's what will happen or I would, or we would like to, to see it happen that these big food industries that's quite intensive and creating a lot of pollution, how they also start transitioning into other forms of food production that are not kind of polluting the sea or, or the soil. Yeah, maybe I'd ask a question. You're joining us from London, right? If I got that right. Well, I mean, the, the scene in London is very different from where we are now. I, I'm, I'm in Istanbul at the moment, in Turkey. So, like, I mean, it's very difficult to find. I don't think I've ever encountered it. Maybe once, but I don't know if it was a lie. Like, non-farm salmon, for example. You know, and it's... And I'm just curious, like, what you would 
recommend to someone, like say living in Turkey, where maybe the information, like when you go to a restaurant, like the information on like where the supplies of foods coming from, their ethos and everything and things like that are not maybe not that clear. And it becomes a bit socially awkward to bring these topics up, not even with the people from the restaurants themselves, but also maybe like among friends, because it's not something that's like readily available in terms of information and in terms of awareness and consciousness. Like I know I shouldn't eat from salmon, but like, where do I go if I want to eat salmon or should I not eat salmon at all? You know, in that case. So I'm curious, like, what is the kind of mental model of like making decisions when it's something as like primitive and like everyday as food? Mm -hmm. It's a good question, Jean. Um, thank you. So basically in the UK is a bit similar that it is not possible to sell wild salmon from the UK because it's under almost under threat of extinction. So all the salmon that is sold or served in the UK is pretty much farmed, unless it's wild from Alaska. And then we can go into another conversation about how wild it is, because wild many times means that they release salmon in a lake and then they fish it, but also comes from a hatchery. So it's very, very hard to trace the provenance of things, as you were saying not only in Turkey, but everywhere. We are more in the position of not eating salmon right away, unless maybe if you go to a river somewhere and you want to eat it, then you decide whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least you are not polluting like other places. So it's more a question of like animal welfare, whether you want to engage with it or not. But I think the problem with farmed salmon and the way the industry it is, kind of these open nets that are polluting the sea, but the same thing with farmed fish all over the Mediterranean, right? And, and in Turkey, we were collaborating with a fish geneticist uh, in the Mediterranean coast of Turkey, trying to trace these things and how fish from farms like sea bream or sea bass that are not farmed at the scale of salmon have also the same problems. So it's very hard. And as you say, is something that perhaps is sometimes uncomfortable to bring it up, but it's also more to, to find the places that you trust. Yeah, I'm sure in Istanbul also some places are ethically more involved. We know there was this campaign, for instance, of not serving small fish that was quite popular, right, in like a couple of years ago. Yeah, the Lufar campaign was quite huge, at least locally, uh, both for fish that like were facing extinction and the younger fish were being sold extensively. So there was this campaign to stop it and some of the stickers still remain. Of course, I'm not sure if the attitude remains in every place, but in many restaurants that sell fish, you still see that they are part of this campaign and they are not selling the younger Lufer, which is Chinekop. So it's these kind of things, but I agree that it's like takes a lot of effort and care. And I mean, I understand you as well, Jinky, the, the kind of treading carefully, but it's always like the social effort Sometimes it's okay to be the challenging one, perhaps. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. And I'm on the Asian coast and there's this new kind of type of fish, which they call the fugitive. The fugitive is like the, the animals that have escaped from the farms, uh, lived for a while, and then they ended up uh, in fishnets again. But I understand that the climate war is not like, for example, veganism, that it's not so much engaged in the, or as much engaged in the well-being of the animals, but it's more about the 
climate and the environment in general? I don't know. Are you a vegan or? <laughs> the way we see it is, is both and, and think is, is more like how to think of these relationships. And there was this case that also is quite interesting in the Cayman Islands, the Department of the Environment. There they decided that there was a problem with the balance of fish. And then they had some years ago, these uh, kind of very, very, very large numbers of lionfish, which is this tropical fish in the Caribbean that has taken over like most of the ecology because of many, many reasons. But basically they were confronted with a problem that usually they used to have thousands of different kinds of fish in the islands. But because of this new fish, that it was eating all of the other ones. And that resulted in, for, of course, there was an economic problem for the country because they, the diving tourism is quite big, but then there were no more fish to see. So what the Department of the Environment decided to do was to almost declare it a national dish, this new fish, uh, in order for people to start fishing it because you cannot balance the numbers otherwise. And they started doing like tournaments of how much you could fish and then like training people how to fish it, collaborating with restaurants to serve it. And that was, had never been eaten before. People had to learn how to deal with it. And in a way that helped rebalance the numbers over like five, six years, they already noticed a much more you know, a recovery of the other species. I was about to comment on this as well, because it's not so much sometimes like, yes, it's also about what to eat. But then on the other hand, it's also about what to eat more. And we also have nearly the lionfish problem in Turkey. Before it was just a pufferfish problem. Now we also have this new lionfish. And I was just <laughs> I was just discussing the other day, like, oh, which restaurant is going to make this trendy and solve this problem? So, the yeah, that's I think I think that would be a really, really like even like joyful way of like solving a, an, an environmental issue right like to make and and it's really yummy the lionfish i must add <laughs> yes definitely and also for us what is interesting to think about is that it might become a national dish in the cayman islands or turkey for like five years and then it might be the opposite that no one can touch it anymore because the numbers are getting more balanced right so i think that's when we talk about flexibility or adaptability yeah, how to be more responsive to these changes that are happening around us. Yeah, I think the anecdote you started from, like how the Turkish geographical regions were defined through crops and through climate, is exactly a really good example because nothing remains the same. And that, that question of responsiveness seems to be the key and allowing knowledge to change more fastly through time and also being responsive in how you kind of act, how you interact and how you intervene or how you just even live your life. So it necessitates a more responsive and a more kind of, I'll say, attentive mode of being. And I think that seems to me to be the kind of uh, key takeaway from the whole climate war and your practice. I have a final note. Like this conversation made me think about guilty pleasures, like like how much uh, self-centric and uh, anthropocentric are uh, the definitions of the guilty pleasures. Because when we think about them, like uh, the guilt is committed against the self, but not the environment, not about other other living beings. So I just wanted to bring that up, and maybe if you could comment on that. <laughs> 
there's, I think, too much guilt we have to be confronted with all the time. Like if you go to the supermarket, you, it's like a, a battlefield. You don't know what to choose because something is organic, something is kind of free range, something is without pesticides and it's endless. And for us, we shouldn't have those kind of guilty moments, right? Because it should be that governments and the food system just offers you things that are all good and that you don't need to pay more money not to be poisoned which is at the moment the case that if you want something that is healthy or that is not full of chemicals, you need to pay double the price. And why is it that everything has no chemicals, right? And like countries could say, okay, I'm going to ban chemicals and everything's going to be organic. And then we don't need to call it organic because we know that everything is, right? So until we get to that moment, we'll have, unfortunately have to go through a lot of guilt <laughs> every time you buy. But is yeah, it's part of the moment we live in and how to find pleasure also within those moments. Thank you, Daniel. This was a really delightful morning for us. I hope it was okay for you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you also for the questions and all the comments. And thanks everyone for joining. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Highly Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarprank Özer with Derya Yıldız as our associate producer. This episode was engineered by Arda Karaburçak with music by Group Ses. This season of A Highly Conversations is supported by the Graham Foundation with additional support on this episode from Moon and Stars Project Grant. Now I know everybody's after your likes and subscribes and follows in this attention economy, but it would really help us reach more ears if you just simply let a friend know. Thank you and see you next time.